Hello and welcome to the How CMOs Commit podcast. I'm Margaret Malloy, Global Chief Marketing Officer of Siegel & Gale. This is a podcast to explore how the world's top CMOs are building their brands and the professional commitments they are making as leaders. This podcast is a recording of our Future of Branding series. From the decisions facing CMOs, to the commitments they are forging. The conversations are uniquely vulnerable and strategic. Please be sure to listen to the end when I provide my reflections. This is how CMOs commit. Hello and welcome to the Siegel & Gale Future of Branding Roundtable. Every episode, we meet a panel of marketing leaders live to explore how they are building their brands. I'm your host, Margaret Molloy, Global Chief Marketing Officer of Siegel & Gale. Siegel & Gale is a preeminent brand strategy, design and experience firm. Today, we welcome hundreds of marketers from across the world to celebrate International Women's Day. Today, as we honour International Women's Day, I express my solidarity with the women men and children suffering in the Ukraine and their friends, family and all the people around the world who are feeling the impact. I also realise that this crisis calls for thoughtful action, not just words. In this spirit, it is heartening to see so many individuals and businesses providing relief, striving to do what they can to provide relief in many different ways. International Women's Day is a day celebrating the social, cultural, economic and political achievements of women. It is also a day to take stock. The 2022 theme is Break the Bias. The moral and business cases for gender equality have been well documented for decades. Nonetheless, in 2022, rigorous studies and the lived experiences of countless women in the workplace and in the community more broadly provide ample evidence that gender bias from outright discrimination to small indignities, whether deliberate or unconscious is very real and present. This bias continues to make it difficult for many women to advance. To explore the role of brands in gender equality, I'm joined today by six CMOs. After the introductions, I'll have one-on-one -on -one conversations with each. We will return to all for our commitments round and as ever, I will conclude with my reflections. Let's meet our panel. Friends, as I introduce you, finish the following sentence in one word. My superpower is. First up, Maya Watson, the Global Head of Marketing Clubhouse, joining today from Atlanta. Good morning, Maya, your superpower. Good morning, Margaret. Thank you for, for hosting us and having us. My superpower is being a great listener, especially to what's being said, but more importantly, to what's not being said. 
Thank you, Maya. Let's now go to Dubai to greet Dana Corey, VP Brand Communications and Marketing, Corporate Head Office, Majid Al Futame Retail. Hello, Dana. Margaret, and thank you very much. My superpower is empathy. Okay. Let's now go to New York, where Christine Anderson is the Senior Managing Director and Global Head of External Relations at Blackstone. Morning, Margaret. Thanks for having us. I'd say my superpower is synergy. Synergy. Okay. I know someone who's very synergistic. Maggie Lohr is the CMO of Hootsuite joining today from Chicago. Hello, Margaret. Thank you so much for having us. And my superpower is authenticity. Authenticity. Lorraine Barber Miller is the Chief Marketing and E-Commerce Officer at Philips in Amsterdam. Good evening, Lorraine. Good evening. Good afternoon, Margaret. Absolutely delighted to be with you today. And my superpower is learning agility. Learning agility. Someone who does a lot of learning and helps us all learn is Samantha Maltine, EVP and CMO of Sesame Workshop in uh, Connecticut today. Hi, Margaret. I'm so happy to be here with this incredible group of women. My superpower is curiosity. Curiosity. So with all of these six superpowers, let's begin our individual conversation with Maya. Maya, I believe you said yours is a listener. Tell us why. You know, it's a really good question. You know, even when I was a kid, I have three older brothers, and they said to me when I was younger that I didn't talk much, which is actually pretty crazy because you can't shut me up anymore. But I was always paying attention to the room and what people were saying and the body language and their emotions and, and what was happening there. And then when I started my career, I was really fortunate to spend the first decade of my career working for Oprah Winfrey and this incredible, powerful group of women who led with intuition, who were very um, trusting and listened to themselves and listened to what they felt and listened to what felt right. And sometimes, you know, the data would tell you to go one way, but then your intuition tells you to go another. So I feel like I've just, I've been really tapped in to that ability to really listen, not just to myself, but you know, also what's being said and, and more importantly, what's not being said in rooms, which I think for women in particular, it is one of our superpowers that is often something we don't talk about in business, but I think it's something that we all pull from in business. So you're at Clubhouse, the leading social audio network. And I know I spend a lot of time listening on Clubhouse. <laughs> Maya, straight out the gate, do you yeah. think brands have a role to play in gender equality? Should brands and companies be getting involved in this issue? Well, my perspective is that as individuals, we have a responsibility to play a role in gender equality. And so I don't think that stops when you go to work, right? And so I think that for every company and every corporation, you have to decide what that means for you. We are literally a platform based on voice. And so, you know, what's amazing about Clubhouse and one of the reasons that I wanted to be here is because everybody gets to be in the room. You know, the way that our app is structured, we have hallways and we have stages and we have rooms where incredible conversations are happening all over the world about every single kind of topic. And I think it really democratizes voice in a way where for people who historically and traditionally have not been able to be in the room or be at the table, 
they can lead the conversation. And so for us, when I think about my responsibility as a marketer is to amplify those voices that oftentimes we don't get to hear from. And so, you know, one of the things that we do, we believe that people are at the center of everything that we do at Clubhouse. Even the way we represent our, our app icon is a person, right? And so I'm very conscious of who we put forward. And so you will see many women, beautiful women who are the face of Clubhouse. You know, the people we choose to highlight, the people we choose to put forward, you know, we're very conscious of that. And so I do think that we all have a role in society. And I think it's it's short-sighted to think that that wouldn't come across in business as well. So let's talk for a moment about anything specific Clubhouse is doing for International Women's Day. And of course, this is also Women's History Month. I was on the town hall yesterday and I heard some really interesting references to some of the rooms that are happening. Yeah, so we're we're always curating wonderful conversations that are culturally relevant. You know, I think you wouldn't be surprised that our ne next app icon will likely be a woman. We haven't announced it yet, but I don't think there should be a surprise there. But more importantly, you know, we are a new tech company. We're not even two years old yet. And so I was employee number 15. I've been here for one year. We've gone from 15 to over 100 people. And I think one of the things that I'm most excited about is how we build our team from inception, because I think a lot of the, the problems and the issues that we have, especially in business, is because we're trying to retroactive things that haven't been done properly or correctly or fair. And so for us, it's like, how can we hire today with that in mind? So I'm really proud that 82% of my team is women, more than 50% of managers at Clubhouse are women. And it's it's important because then we don't have to go back and fix it, right? And and you're you're constantly coming from a place of doing the right thing to begin with that then hopefully will continue on long after, you know, most of us have been, have been there. So in addition to figuring out how do we curate the right conversations and put women forth as representative of the brand, the most important thing we can be doing right now is hiring and putting women in positions of power, not just women on the team, but in decision-making power. And so that's, that's what we're focused on. Now, Maya, of course, at Clubhouse, you have the luxury to some degree of being a startup. I have many uh, talented men and who want to be allies in my network. I know all of us do. What advice do you give to men who want to make a difference? Well, I think it goes back to what I said my superpower was, which there are some very well-intentioned men. And the most important thing you can do is to listen, like listen more than you speak on the topic, but also get get comfortable being uncomfortable. You know, I think that these topics and, and making change is tough. It's not easy. It means that there's going to be parts of you know, who they are and things that they've accepted that have to shift. And that's not easy for anybody. So I think the most important thing is to listen. And the second most important thing is to bring in women into the conversation, like admit what you don't know and ask women what the right solution is, as opposed to assuming what you think the right solution is. And so when I've had that experience with men in my life where they've come humbly and kind of open to, to acknowledging what they don't know, I think we're able to make change faster. Now, Maya, International Women's Day has been around for over 100 years, and we're still having this conversation. <laughs> no, it's amazing. What, what excites or even disappoints you today? You know, I mean, I think what excites me is there is a lot of change that's happening. And I think that, you know, when I look at, you know, 
Madam Vice President Kamala Harris, or I look at even my ability to be in the seat that I'm in as a Black woman at a one of the fastest growing tech startups ever. That's progress. I think the thing that frustrates me is that, you know, we're still having to have these discussions. <laughs> like it's, you know, it's this double-edged sword. So, you know, I don't think these conversations should ever go away. We're never done with this work. It, it's going to continue on forever, right? As long as humanity exists and humans are going to human. And so I think we need to equally celebrate the progress we've made while also not being complacent with, with how much work we still have to do. You know, I have a daughter, she is 16 and, you know, she is one of those girls who's coming up and they're just coming in with a different point of view. You know, they're not accepting kind of the biases and why can't they do certain things or, you know, all of the things that are possible for her. And so when I look at her and her friends and kind of see how they talk about it, that makes me proud of how far we've come. But it's also, you know, I'm instilling in her, listen, girl, you got to keep, you know, pass the baton to you. You know, you got to keep going, keep it going. So I'm equally happy and also continue to be frustrated, which I just think is inherent just being a human. Absolutely. And we will continue this conversation afterwards on Clubhouse. On so Clubhouse. reminder for everyone to join. If you haven't experienced it, please don't be intimidated. It's a lot of fun. And uh, again, looking forward to hearing the audience perspective on what we might be missing today. So now let's go to Dubai. Thank you for that, Maya. Now it's Dana's turn. So Dana, VP of Brand Communications and Marketing at Majid Al Futaim. You said your word, if I heard you correctly, was empathy. Tell me more. Yeah. Um, okay, so when you build actually empathy when you yourself, you go through tough times. And I'm glad you brought the uh, Ukraine conflict now because I've lived uh, 17 years of civil war. I'm Lebanese. I live in Dubai, but I'm Lebanese. And I've seen the atrocities of war. And I've seen nonsense conflicts simply because one party doesn't want to listen to the point of view of the other party. And uh, <clears throat> came here to Dubai, to the UAE, and I lived with different nationalities, different religions, different beliefs, different cultures. And that has helped me understand and respect and live the, and be accepting of the others, right? And I've experienced this firsthand at work. And this has helped me a lot because being a woman, being a working mother, being a wife, I understand what other women colleagues go through, right? Um, and I also understand what customers go through, their, their unique challenges. And it's very important to put yourself in other shoes so that you can find the right solutions for them versus jumping directly to a conclusion that might not be relevant to them. Now, you work at one of the largest Emiratis conglomerates serving people in the Middle East, Africa and Asia through your retail models, uh, leisure facilities and others. Now, I think we, we recognize that there are many myths about women in the region and acknowledging that the experiences are very different across the region. What would you say to those myths? Are those, and to what degree are they aligned with your reality today? There are, of course, several myths and it's they're based on what people, the little people see or hear about, you know, the, the Arab countries. But um, I want to 
talk about that myth that Arab women are only wives and mothers. Arab women have much bigger aspirations and ambitions than just being mothers, right? And wives. And across Arab countries, we have women CEOs, women executives in multinational companies, local corporations. We have women entrepreneurs, women investors, women ministers. It's there, right? Now, of course, I'll give you a few numbers. We, as women labor force, we're still relatively low compared to the global average. So we're at 24, 25%. But what's interesting is that we are experiencing a reverse gender gap in education. So we now see more women graduates than men graduates. And that's very important, even in STEM. In STEM, you find 35 to 57%, depending on the country, of women graduates in STEM. And that means that the share of women in highly productive jobs will more than double by 2030. So we are on the right track. We are actually on a fast track because we are learning from the West, right? We are taking those learnings, those policies, and we're going on a fast track. It, just in UAE, for instance, we have around 23,000 businesses run by Emirati women, okay? And these sum up to around, you know, they're, they're worth around 45 to $50 billion. So all these facts show what the ambition of women, Arab women are. So at the company, Majid Al-Futaim, you have an interesting perch in terms of retail and leisure experiences. What is the company doing in terms of gender equality? How do you approach it? Okay, so I'm going to leave part of this answer to the end, but I want to, I want to mention one thing. It is very important as any brand and an Arab brand, the local Emirati brand, to stand for, you know, social issues and gender equality. Um, so while we're not, you know, as advanced as, for instance, Dove and their campaigns in women empowerment, anything we do, we make sure that, you know, the campaigns, the stories we run portray women as, you know, not only mothers or wives, but as career women, as women decision makers, as women in power. And while we have to respect the cultural nuances of, of the region, we still are quite courageous in showing women, you know, well, way beyond, beyond just being, you know, a mother. Now, um, I think, I just think we can do more. Uh, we can be a bit more vocal and courageous in those conversations. And I've started seeing this very recently. I asked Maya the question around men as allies. I'll ask the same question of you. What is your advice? Yeah, I love this question. Look, um, men had an incredible impact on my career. Um, I look at men in three roles, executives or bosses, fathers, and husbands. And each of them can really help women. So uh, bosses or leaders, they can really help by championing DNI initiatives, uh, by understanding the challenges that women go through, because once they understand, then they can come up with solutions and they can help us by providing coaching and uh, mentoring opportunities. And last but, but not least, encouraging and urging women to take on bigger roles. Because in general, 
um, women are a bit more cautious than men when it comes to jumping in, on an opportunity, you know, a, a promotion. So this is where they can really help and push us to take those roles. As fathers, I think they can instill in their daughters from a very young age that ambition and confidence to build a career. And I think they can at home be very egalitarian. They can encourage debates and open conversations, and they can expose their daughters to male-dominated um, uh, fields, right? And as husbands, I'm sure each one of us here says that their husbands have encouraged them to take bigger role, and they have actually supported us in the house and in the parenting duties. Thank you for that framework. Very helpful framework. Anything we're missing? Dana, from your perspective? Anything we're missing at this point? No, I think, you know, I just love it. And I'm so proud of seeing so many Arab women, um, you know, taking that leap. I've, I've, I've had the pleasure to mentor many Saudi young women, and they are the first generation of working women. And uh, the ambition they have is incredible. Well, thank you. Thank you for that, Dana, and indeed for mentoring those future leaders. Let's now go to New York, where Christine Anderson said her word was synergy. Hi, Christine. Hi, how are you? Well, I, I oversee communications and reputational risk, marketing, brand, and ESG at Blackstone. So, you know, I think I think you can for some of you who may know this space, some of these can sometimes be irritants within the organization. Right. The idea of, you know, sort of having to get to people on things like reputational risk or having to ask them to take on ESG initiatives, not always super popular or, or what someone sees is sort of, you know, paramount that they do day to day. So to be sort of a, a bit of an irritant to them, be a woman, it, it sometimes makes it harder to get your messages across and to get people to want to sit at the table and work with you. So for me, it's really been about, you know, taking people along and convincing them that there's a value to what they're doing. And, and really, I think for me, it was unlocking the, the power of ESG for our business. You know, we invest money upon, uh, you know, on behalf of big institutions and also individuals, and we put that money to work buying companies. And then we fix up these companies and then we sell them off. So for us, it was if I can take our investment professionals along and teach them that, that ESG has something to do with value creation, and all of a sudden they're on board. So for me, it's really been trying to, to, you know, take people along, convince them that there's there's a powerful reason to do this that impacts our business as a whole and impacts the business that they businesses that they work on. So that's why. And a reminder for everyone in the audience, ESG, environmental, social and governance. Now, I know Blackstone is the world's largest alternative asset manager. And Christine, it's been well documented the challenges women have around access to capital. Uh, could you speak to that from your perspective? Sure. So I, I think this is a space I'm, I was surprised by how much this was still an issue, much like Maya was saying earlier. We, I mean, you think we've made more progress, but you know, in, in last year, women-backed companies only received 2% of the venture capital. I mean, that's, that's just kind of staggering, right? You know, we don't invest in companies because they are women owned, but I think we've made a point of looking at, at voices that may not have been heard and looking. And in that way, I think we've been able to unlock some opportunities that are out there that others may not have seen. So you know, we've invested in companies like Bumble, which is an online dating company, Spanx, which I think most of us all know, Hello Sunshine, which is Reese's, Reese, Reese Witherspoon's company and, and many others like Supergroup, for example, 
all with women founders who had an idea and something they wanted to do and, and it took them a long time to get there. And we've kind of looked at these looked at these cases and said, you know, here are women women who have really amazing ideas and they need the capital to help take those ideas and and make their dreams a reality. So for us, that's been a really interesting opportunity set. And I think additionally, you know, our Spanx deal team was entirely female. So for us, I think we think a lot about how to create this virtuous cycle where that all female deal team was able to secure the Spanx deal. And then other female founders look at look at what we've done there. They see that we've invested in Spanx. We see what we're helping that company do. And they see the women that are leading those initiatives internally. And then it helps us with hiring. You know, if Clubhouse has trouble hiring, you can imagine that that a brand like Blackstone has even more trouble. Right. Because, you know, we're less let you know, we don't have the, I think, sort of sex appeal of a of a Clubhouse or some of these other big brands. But, you know, if you think about it, you know, for us, if we can if we can kind of put the achievements of women on display, it really does help us create that virtuous cycle with hiring, which is helpful. So let's talk about hiring, Christine. You mentioned hiring and I would have to say there's an image in the financial services industry. How does that impede your progress um, when it comes to hiring talented women? Well, we've been at this for a long time, so fortunately, I think we're starting to make some real progress. But I, I think the legacy perception of financial services really is this hangover that we're still dealing with. I think people have a very outdated view of what it's like to work in the industry, what the culture's like. And I think they would be pleasantly surprised if they took a look at, you know, and, and saw what was sort of under the hood. You know, we have everything from sort of world-class benefits and maternity leave and fertility treatment, all these things that you would expect you know, nowadays, but then in, in addition to that, cultures that really are, you know, pushing women forward. So, you know, we now have an incoming analyst class that's 40% women up from 20% just a few years ago. I think through this, we've learned it's not just all these initiatives to bring people in and to recruit people. And, and then obviously the things that you do once they're here, but it's about shifting the brand perceptions about, you know, what this industry is like for women. So I think events like these are really important, hopefully to, to kind of shaking that up a little bit. And then for us, I think there's also, an, you know, I'm also speaking my own book, but an ESG element to this, which is that people want to work at purpose-driven companies. This is not just women, but I do think for women, there is some desire to do that even, even more so. And so when they look at things that we're doing, you know, helping our companies decarbonize, we have a 15% emissions reduction program. We have a one-third board, board diversity program. So all of the new companies that we're investing in will have boards that are at least one-third diverse. I mean, these are things that are starting to speak to women and they say, okay, this is a financial institution I, I, I want to work at. So for us, it's been really important to think about how we communicate externally, you know, what it's like to be here, but then the value of our work and our purpose. Christine, I want to touch on your point around retention. What advice would you give to leaders of all genders who want to sure. nurture female talent? Sure. I, you know, I'll, I'll speak just from my own personal experience. I would say, you know, be very upfront and talk, talk to you know, women and make them feel comfortable about speaking about their personal life and family challenges. Right. And then try to be as flexible as you can about the things in the short term that can make their life easier. And, you know, nowadays, I think with with Zoom and remote work and things like that, there are ways to do that. But every situation is different, and that's not the solve, frankly, for every every situation. So I think it's about figuring out where people are at, meet them where they are, and then play the long game. These are women that you want at the at the company longer term, and you've got to kind of help them get through these periods where they're either in the thick of it with with young kids or sick parents or whatever it might be. But help them make it work so that they'll they'll be there longer term. 
And then the last thing I would say is just very direct feedback. You know, I, I remember, you know, years and years ago when I first started here 13 years ago, someone saying in a review at the end of the year that I should, you know, speak up more. And I remember thinking like, I wish someone had just said that to me during the middle of the year, right? So I think just really clear, real-time feedback and just pushing women around you, even if they don't report for you, they're not on their team, but help help push them forward and make them better. And then very briefly, what excites and or disappoints at this point in 2022? I would say I, I kind of fall the same way the others do, where I feel like we've made a lot of progress. I look within my own organization and I feel like there's never been greater opportunity for women you know, and, and certainly pay equity and all these things that the women before us had to fight so hard for, you know, and that's great. But then I also think, you know, why it's still a struggle to bring women into the industry and still, you know, still a struggle to to get as, you know, to get to parity with respect to, you know, women and, and diverse talent. So I, I think there's still a bit of a way to go in creating environments, I think, that allow women to both be really present at home and also have really rewarding careers. So I think there's there's more to do there. Thank you for that, Christine. Let's now go to Maggie Lauer, CMO of Hootsuite, who shared that her word was authenticity. Yes. So I'll, I'll maybe tell a very brief story because I know that we are on time constraints here, Margaret. So when I first started managing and leading people, I, I never found that any of the popular leadership models at the time resonated with me. It was about doing this a certain way because of that versus, hey, there's a person on your team that's struggling. Maybe you should reach out to them, have a conversation with them, draw them out, find a way to manage to them individually. And when I was exposed to people like Pat Lencioni and Brene Brown and you know others that have since you know gotten to this um, really powerful talk track of rolling up your sleeves and being in it with your teams and being real, that's when I really saw my teams start to just flourish and deliver and bond and care for each other and show up for each other. And that was the kind of team I wanted to be on, right? So just because I'm the leader of the team doesn't mean I'm not in it with them. And so for me, that idea of authenticity became something that I really craved. And, you know, as somebody that has their own journey towards authenticity, I just think it's very difficult to cultivate creative problem solving and thinking when you don't have a space or you're not holding a safe space for people. And so really studying, you know, org behavior and performance, that started to really unlock me as a professional. And now it's something I'm really intentional about the talking that I'm not learning. And so I try to spend a lot of time being really intentional about, okay, is this the right time to ask a question or are they still unpacking something? And how do I help people self-discover? Because I've always found that when people can self-discover, it's a much more powerful lesson than you just giving them the guidebook and saying, here you go. Yeah, and a great shout out there to Brene Brown and all the work on vulnerability, mm -hmm. which does bring me to a segue around your own identity, Maggie. Mm -hmm. I know from many of these conversations around inclusive storytelling, a big theme is intersectionality. And you've mm -hmm. been an out woman, LGBTQ, remember, for many years now. Tell us about how you navigate the various dimensions of your identity. That is a very big question and a really important one. And thank you for asking it. You know, the short answer to that question is that I try really hard to fully inhabit every conversation that I'm in. So if we're in a conversation on a certain topic, I really try hard to be present to whatever we're confronting in that conversation. Now, having said that, I can't replace the fight for my seat at the table, my rights as a woman with you know, my mission to be seen as an LGBTQ member. Like I'm not gonna make those choices. And so for me, when either of those communities wins, everybody wins. So I try not to modulate as much as I can. I try to fight for everything that is part of my identity. And when I see 
that I have an opportunity to advocate for other identities, I do that as well. There's a really interesting example for anybody, and I'm sure several people here in the comms industry, so in, in marketing, the Human Rights Campaign is a fascinating organization. And you know, for anybody that's been paying attention, um, Alfonso David took over a few years ago. And one of the things that he's done is really pivoted the whole mandate of HRC to protecting the trans community. And part of the reason for that is if the trans community can be protected, and it is so deeply under fire right now that if we don't protect it, you know, even more horrible outcomes are going to come out of this, then none of us are safe, right? And he, he you know, I, I had a chance to speak with him with a group of about 10 people, and his point was really beautiful. He said, you know, we'd have no movement without the trans community. They were the original dissidents at Stonewall, for those that don't know that story. So we need to fight for them as they've fought for us because we're all part of one community. I think the women's rights community has made some mistakes early on. And its existence or when it really started to gain uh, momentum in the 60s because they excluded the LGBT community. So I, I just think that really being inclusive is actually the way to expand voice and create more power behind your mission. So Maggie, let's talk about Hootsuite, a leading social media management platform used by more than 80% of the Fortune 100. What's the perspective at Hootsuite in terms of gender equity? Oh, wow. We actually undertook gender pay equity in 2020. And um, as of last year, we identified that we have gender pay equity across every intersectional group in our company. So it was a really intentional um, endeavor that we went under our CHRO, like, do not mess with her. She is going to fight for every single person that feels underrepresented in our company until she takes her last breath. I feel fortunate to be in a culture and a marketing position with such a fierce ally. Recreated and re, um, reworded our job descriptions to use gender neutral language. We've intentionally tried to remove inherent bias from our screening process. We actually re-architected our whole screening process around that. We have annual training that's required around bias and removing unconscious bias. We have a DEI community that's really forced or really focused on how we incorporate that thinking from the moment you're a prospect coming into Hootsuite to you know how you think about making business decisions as a member of the Hootsuite community. Does this business work for us and with our guiding principles or not? So, you know, I think the last piece of this, and I think it's really, really important at the risk of being provocative, you can't talk about this all the time and not put women in some of your most powerful roles. Our board chair is a woman. She's a force of nature. She's incredible. I'm fortunate to have her as my board buddy. Tom has put several people on the ELT. There's no fiercer ally than Tom Kaiser. And so I think to your point earlier about men being allies as well, we should embrace that. <laughs> we should want them to be at the table with us. So Hootsuite has a really strong perspective on this and works hard at it all the time. We certainly don't have anything, everything figured out, but we talk about this a lot and we're always trying to get better. So let's talk about technology, Maggie. There is so much debate about technology perpetuating or eliminating bias. What would you say? Friend or foe or both? Oh, so if I'm talking about technology broadly, I would say we are deeply connected and sometimes or we are we are deeply technologized and underconnected. So I think we have this sort of idea that all of this technology is going to make us even more connected. And I don't know about you, but I have about nine communication channels that I'm supposed to manage. And I've just had to start actively telling people, if you want to get me quickly, you have to go here because these other six are Sundays at 6 p.m. Like there's just no way to stay on top of it. 
I think if we're talking about technology, technology with a specific application of social, you know, one of the reasons we've taken on mental health as a really important area of action for us is that, you know, if you aren't really intentional about your relationship with social media, it can it can contribute to depression. It can contribute to mental health issues. And so we would rather lean into that then run away from it and pretend it doesn't exist. And so we're trying to help people think about that healthier relationship with tech. And I think for social, in terms of friend, we believe that social is the great leveler. You know, we're not just out there whale hunting. We're actually looking for how we can empower and activate all of these community members, all of these people with their side huff cells that want to turn those into their careers and their lifestyles. We don't believe that social is just for one demographic or one B2B company or enterprise brand. Social's for everybody. So part of our mission is to democratize that and have more people engaged in the conversation. And thank you for that. And thank you, Maggie, for calling out social for good as well as the pitfalls. Okay, let's now go to Lorraine. Lorraine Barber Miller at Phillips. Lorraine, you said your word was learning agility. Tell me more. That's right, uh, Margaret. So having worked and led teams across more than 100 markets, various industries, and spanning sales, marketing, communications, digital, e-commerce disciplines throughout my career, I've always learned to do things I had not done before to take on assignments that others either could not or would not. And as you could imagine, when you're flexing in so many variables, it really requires continuous curiosity, courage, perseverance, I would also say resilience and passion. And so for example, in my current role, most recently having led a large scale international transformation of marketing and e-commerce for Philips over the last two years, this has really called for the ability to adapt, evolve, anticipate, and constantly transform while performing for the business in times of great uncertainty. At the same time, I would say our profession is experiencing unprecedented uh, levels, digital and transformational change that my co-panelists have been talking about, which are also great enablers for us to constantly experiment with, to learn from in terms of new approaches, and to challenge our ways of thinking and engagement with customers and consumers. Now, Lorraine, Royal Phillips, leading health technology company around since 1891, maybe the oldest company on the panel today. How do you think about it, that company, the issues surrounding gender equality, and maybe share an example from your marketing on your goals there? Would love to. Absolutely, Margaret. So as I step back and think about Phillips, so we certainly believe that breaking all forms of bias, including gender, is not only good for the well-being of our employees, but equally essential to the future of our company. And what I mean by that is that we truly believe we need to reflect the many customers, consumers, and patients we serve globally. And so D&I are incredibly important elements of our ESG strategy and reporting, as mentioned before. And so, you know, we provide unconscious bias awareness training for Phillips leaders we cr to create that dialogue across the organization. And for our employees who are passionate about the topic, we've created ERGs. So that's from a Phillips perspective. From a functional or marketing perspective, one example I'll share with you all is that we learned 
from our hair removal consumers, believe it or not, that they didn't necessarily appreciate the male-female split on our digital property, phillips.com. They found it to be quite traditional, right? And they wanted more of a unisex approach to their online experience. So in the spirit of listening to our consumers, we created a new structure based on benchmark analysis, external uh, search behavior, user interviews, and even analytics data. And now we've redesigned our digital experience and product categorization on our website. So instead of searching for male or female hair removal products on our digital platforms, it's truly structured by the body part that you want to remove hair from. So such as your face, body, hair or nose. So, you know, we're taking these small steps, but meaningful steps to really reflect what our consumers want to see and, and how they want to engage with us. And to take it even a step further, we're also ensuring that our product packaging reflects the same consumer feedback with a unisex design approach. So, Lorraine, to experience that website, what's the URL? What do we search for? Yes, phillips.com. Wonderful. So looking forward to checking that out. Maybe talk to us a little about representation in your marketing, photography or otherwise. I know you have a very expansive portfolio of products. Yes. So I'll talk about both our B2B as well as our B2C portfolios. Well, let me start off by saying this, Margaret. Because it's critical that we reflect the populations we serve in the healthcare arena, we revamped our entire brand visual elements for both our health systems and our personal health businesses to ensure that there is a true representation of what medical professionals, patients, consumers look like and what they expect in their engagement with our brand. So just to provide a few examples, in our B2B marketing and advertising, we feature male nurses, female doctors from a diverse range of cultures. So instead of the stereotypical white female nurses or the older male physicians or traditional families in hospital settings, we're completely flipping that on its side and representing the true reflection of our society and who we serve. Additionally, we also know based on medical studies in the US, for example, African-Americans predominantly suffer from respiratory illness. Our advertising is representative of this. Now on the B2C side of the house, the imagery that we use for brands like Sonicare, OneBlade, Avant are also reflective of our diverse consumers. So you'll see we're using same-sex couples, body positive models and we're incredibly proud of the work in this space it just it's quite a departure at least for us from just a few years ago so very briefly lorraine share a hope and a fear at this point a hope and a fear well you know i reflect it's very timely last week uh, linkedin published research and in that, they noted that the share of women who've been hired into leadership positions in the U.S. grew by nearly 10 percent since 2015. So I'm an optimist. And so as women, clearly we've made progress. My wish, my hope is that it would have been bolder progress. And when I look forward, I look forward to the day that we're referred to as leaders rather than female or women leaders.
A great note. Thank you for that, Lorraine. So let's finally go to Samantha. Samantha, EVP at Sesame Workshop, and her superpower is curiosity. I'm curious. Tell me why, Samantha. Yes, curiosity. So from the time that my sister and I were little girls, my mother used to say all the time, take it all in, girls, take it all in. And now, of course, I repeat that to my children. I have a son and a daughter. I think that my desire to know more about people is really what fuels me. It's what helps me connect to people personally, professionally, because I, I want to know more about them, what motivates them, what inspires them. It allows me to be more present for people because I'm really curious about who they are and how they show up. And I think as a leader, having that understanding about your team and your colleagues is so important. And certainly as a marketer, having that understanding about your audience is critical. Being curious has really driven a lot of the choices that I've made in my life. It's helped me take risks professionally, move into different roles throughout my career. I went from being steeped in media and entertainment for 20 years, and then I made a move to a data science consulting firm because I wanted to learn more, because I wanted to be a more data-driven marketer. And it's really, it's one of the things that's brought me to Sesame Workshop. Our mission is to help kids grow smarter, stronger, and kinder, and helping to foster that ability to learn and grow in children, especially my own, it's really one of the most fulfilling things for me. So Samantha, I know Elmo loves to learn. So how do you reflect your agenda around gender equality in your content? Yeah, Sesame Workshop was founded 50 years ago, over 50 years ago, with the purpose of building equity for all, not just through the lens of gender, with a focus on self-acceptance, on respect, on inclusion. And the whole idea for Sesame Street was born in the late 1960s during the civil rights movement in the US. There was this new wave of research showing just how far the children living in poverty were falling behind in terms of education. And that's the research that sparked our founders, a woman, Joan Gans Cooney, and uh, Lloyd Morissette. She was a public television producer and he was an educational psychologist. And they wanted to see if television could be used to teach and in particular to reach low-income families so that all children could arrive at school ready to learn. So today, Sesame is the largest informal educator of young children in the world, and we take that very seriously, that responsibility. We're in 150 countries, from India to Mexico to Sub-Saharan Africa to the Middle East, and we like to say we're the longest street in the world, right? But gender equity is an important focus for all of our international co-productions. Equity is at the heart of everything that we do. It's really just part of our DNA at Sesame. You know, gender limits and inequity are social constructs. And I think the best way to counter them long term is to change the attitudes of young children and families. We know that if children can see it, they can be it. And the media that they consume has such a power to shape their sense of selves and their future. Samantha, you mentioned you're in 150 countries, the longest street in the world. Might you provide an example of the work you're doing around gender equality in the community in any of those locations? Yes, I'll give you an example from our local version of Sesame Street, which aired in Afghanistan, Bashki Simpson. That means 
uh, Sesame Garden in Dari and Pashto. The lead Muppet there, she's this curious, energetic little six-year-old. She's so proud to wear her school uniform and her little backpack, and she loves to go to school. And last year, we introduced her little four-year-old brother, Zarek, and Zarek looks up to his big sister, and, and she's really encouraging him to think about what he might be, what he wants to be when he grows up. So we're trying to break down gender stereotypes that are often formed at a very young age, as we all know. We're featuring women in roles like doctors and scientists and pilots. And then we're also modeling how boys can help around the house. And we do have research to show that this works. In that example, boys and girls who did watch Boschke Simpson test 29% higher on gender equity attitudes. And we even have qualitative research with fathers who show that they are more like the fathers who are watching with their children are more likely to send their daughters to school, which is so important, especially in a region like that. Um, that is really the power of media and Muppets. Media to reach a vast number of children and even in the most remote communities and Muppets because they have this unique ability to engage with children and their families and their and their caregivers in a really non-threatening way and they're opening minds and they're changing attitudes and really planting seeds to shift society and mindsets so samantha will you play a game with me pick a character from sesame street and tell us what they teach us about how men can make a difference oh well i've got to go with elmo he's right here uh, we've done a lot of work with our characters to shift mindsets with fathers in particular and male caregivers, as I mentioned. But Elmo and Zuzu in South Africa, um, our, our co-production is called Takalani Sesame. They would tell you, they would share a little bit about the, the work that we've done there. We ran a, a pilot program with dads and it was this 12 week series to really promote gender role transformation. And we taught through the Muppets, through our characters, through Elmo and Zuzu and others and the cast there, we taught fathers how to play with their children, how to care for and play with their children and in an area where that is not the norm at all. And we saw a tremendous shift in their mindsets. They, these workshops really increased their understanding of how to do that, of, of being present as a father there. So we know the programs are successful. We know Elmo has broken through and Zuzu. And even more importantly, these programs are scalable and we are committed to expanding our work around the world. I think everyone here knows the power of storytelling and we can't forget that the right stories have an impact for even the youngest audiences. Well, thank you, Samantha. Elmo says, thank you. I've been waiting, I've been waiting the whole time to say that. <laughs> okay, let's go back around for our commitments round, starting with Maya. Maya, the International Women's Day theme this year, as we know, is Break the Bias. What is your organization's commitment to challenge gender bias and inequality and how will you measure success? Yeah, I think one of the things that we think about and just like a North Star question to ask ourselves is one, what is the right thing to do? And in a hundred years, would we be proud of this decision? And so I think for us, that is what guides us. 
And I think, you know, the first thing that we're committing to is hiring and making sure that as we build Clubhouse, we're building with inclusivity, DEI, and gender equity, you know, at the forefront. And that means in terms of who we put in what positions, how we pay them, um, and what opportunities are given. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing, which is probably a harder thing to measure, but is something that we will continue to do always, is to elevate and amplify voices that have historically and traditionally not been on the forefront. And that is for women, but that is for all types of all types of people, Black people, trans people, you know, people from the LGBTQ community, Asian voices, everybody deserves a seat at the table and everybody's voices deserve to be heard. Thank you, Maya. Dana, same question, your commitment and how you will measure success. We work closely with the UAE government on gender equality. And we have partnered with them at the Expo 2020 and signed a pledge to bring women managers up to 30% by year 2026. Now, we signed this six, seven months ago last summer, and we were at 14% women managers and its senior managers, executives, and board members. We are now at 18%. So we're clearly measuring this. And the other thing we are rolling out this year is a gender unconscious bias training for all the, the organization. And that goes to 17 countries and over 35,000 employees. So that, that's a big step for us. Same question, Christine, please. Sure, I'll go a little micro. So and focus just on my group for a minute where what I've realized is we get people into these affinity groups that we have, right, to, to help, you know, help them network and, 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 you know, build a support network. But I think what we need to do is have more people join and more people participate in some of these events and, and, and things that we do to really sort of create an environment where people feel supported by their colleagues and peers. So if it's a women's network event, how do we get more men to attend that event, right, to understand and see, you know, sort of the struggles of women and what needs to get done? And you could replicate that across all of our different affinity groups. So for our, our particular group of about 75 people, we're really trying to make sure that everyone plays a role in all of the different support groups. It doesn't mean you go to every event that, that happens, but it means at some point during the year, you show your support. And we're building a whole set of you know, systems internally to make sure that, that people know what it means to be an ally from the minute someone is onboarded you know, to their, you know, throughout their career at the firm. And we're really going to kind of track participation. So I think that's the best way to show, um, you know, whether we're making in progress is whether people show up. Maggie Lauer, same question. Right. Thank you for the question. You know, I think what you're going to see from Hootsuite, particularly as it plays out over the course of this year, is that everything we're trying to do is create access so that people can find belonging. I mean, that's really at like the top of the pyramid in terms of how we're thinking about how we look at the market. And and it, it isn't that we aren't still super focused on that beautiful stat you shared about 80% of the Fortune 500 working with us. But where I think we're really going to achieve our potential as a company is by bringing more and more people in that maybe haven't felt like they had a seat. And, you know, we really want to show the way that principled business is good business. So that's the commitment we will continue to make. Lorraine, please. So gender equality also to us means giving women equal opportunity for career advancement. With Philips being such a large global company, we also have great diversity in terms of nationalities and cultures. 
But if, if I look, Margaret, at my organization itself with over 3,000 practitioners worldwide, I strongly believe we should have even more females uh, in leadership positions. And so I've intentionally ensured we have a 50-50 split of men and women in leadership positions in my organization. And then overall for the full organization, we have more than 50, precisely 58% are females throughout the function because I believe it's so important for us to have a strong pipeline of future leadership talent, which also requires diversity of experience and thought. It makes us stronger, more creative, and of course, it challenges us to be our very best. Thank you, Lorraine. And finally, Samantha. Thanks, Margaret. I, I'm really proud to be part of a brand that prioritizes equity and we're all continuously challenging ourselves to do more, but it's not just about the intention or the initiatives that we launch, it's about creating the impact and we need rigor around the measurement of that impact. So I'm really thrilled because we just hired a chief research data and impact officer who will help us analyze what we're learning from our work so that we can scale it around the world successfully. And then we're also working closely with our Chief Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Officer who has brought in the Equity Lab and other external partners to help us both internally in our employees and, and um, work with our um, affinity groups as well as in our work, but to really start to take that intersectional perspective on gender equity as others have, have talked about. We can't uncouple gender from the other dimensions of people's identities. And so we really are looking at gender equity as it intersects with other things like race, ability, and, and others. Thank you for that, Samantha. And in thanking all of our panel, here are my reflections. It may be difficult to believe that in 2022, we are still having a conversation on Break the Bias. While it is tempting to be dispirited, I draw renewed optimism from today's conversation. As we acknowledge progress, celebrate the accomplishments of six women marketing leaders, and recognize the privileged position that companies and brands can occupy to drive meaningful change in the world. In listening to our six speakers, I offer two macro opportunities for leaders of all genders to pay attention to. First, as marketing leaders, we can intentionally embrace the enormous influence companies and brands have on economies, people, and culture. By deploying creativity, storytelling, and our commercial clout, we can defy archaic stereotypes and represent women equally and expansively. Second, as business leaders, we can intentionally listen and cultivate workplaces that are adaptive to the holistic realities that women face. By deploying comprehensive systems complete with processes, measurement and incentives, we can value women and everyone equally. Thank you once again to our six CMOs for providing tangible examples of how you are breaking the bias. We look forward to tracking your progress. Thank you to our audience. Thank you to my team.
My fellow producers, Alison Shiver and Aaron Proud, assisted today by Mick Smith, Aisha Ewing and Chisam Izibuka, blog editor Daniel Alonso and designer Gisem Karatis, and our entire Siegel and Gale team. You can listen to all our previous CMO roundtables by following How CMOs Commit on Apple or Spotify. Please follow the podcast now to get updates. On this, the eve of International Women's Day, I would be most grateful if you would share How CMOs Commit podcast with friends and colleagues, rate it and give us a review. It makes a real difference to amplify female voices on these platforms. With that, on behalf of everyone at Siegel and Gale, I'm Margaret Malloy, thanking you and wishing you a very happy International Women's Day. Thank you for joining How CMOs Commit. You've heard the strategic insights and professional commitments of top brand builders from around the world. I hope you also enjoyed my reflections on how this conversation is relevant to all marketers. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast app. And please rate, review, and share this podcast. Until next time, this is how CMOs commit.